Welcome to The Rock Church. I'm Pastor Shane, and I'm so appreciative of your time today for this episode. I'm especially excited to start this series. It's going to be called The Supreme Life. I'll explain that more here in just a moment, but the thing that's nice about a series in this particular case is it's going to be three weeks. So the good news is, if you like today, if it's encouraging, if you feel like it's challenged your thinking and, and caused you to self-reflect in some area of life, the good news is there's a couple more weeks after. Now, if you didn't like it after we're through today, the good news is you, there's only a couple more weeks. And so I say that because I know some pastor friends that ministers that will, they've done series that will go seven, eight, even nine weeks long. And I'll just confess, I'm not quite that brave. I don't know that I'm that interesting to be able to go that long. Uh, but again, three weeks and each week we'll have a one-word title. It's, it's going to be beautifully simple, and, and that's this. Today is going to be Believe. That's what we're going to dig into essentially through what we discuss. Next week will be Beware, and finally we'll end with Behave. And throughout this series, and, and more specifically today, this is going to be part apologetic, part evangelistic, but 100% expository. And now, why do I even say that? Those words may not mean much to you. I say that because of who I want to talk to today. I want to talk to the skeptic. I want to talk to the lost, those that are sort of wrestling with Jesus as God. So they're not just a skeptic. They've, they, they believe in God, but they're kind of wrestling whether or not Jesus is that. And then I also want to talk to the church because I think, regardless of what category you find yourself in, I think that we could all take something away today. If you're willing to be intellectually honest, if you're willing to look at the, the facts, the data, and, and, and allow the Holy Spirit, as I believe, the Holy Spirit to move in this time together, I think it can be pretty powerful. And so most importantly, that's what I'm hoping for, is that God will speak to all of us. Now, this video was shared to you by a friend. It's because they think you're in one of those three categories. You just have to figure out which of the three it is. Are you the skeptic, the lost, or are you part of the church? And by church, we mean capital C Church, the broader Christian faith church. But let's get into this. this today is going to be called Believe. We're part of this, uh, this series called The Supreme Life. Now, what, why do I call it supreme life? Why do I use the word supreme? Let me just use this little illustration or analogy for you. When you look at things in our common vernacular, when we use the word supreme, it's because we're trying to designate some sort of like uh, uh, value to it. It's special. It's awesome. It's the best, right? You think of supreme pizza, Maybe that is the best for you, supreme, chicken supreme, nacho supreme, nacho regular, nachos, nacho supreme. Get all the ingredients in there. Taco supreme, omelet supreme, ice cream supreme, and you could come up with several others that we commonly refer to. But it causes me to reflect on the word itself, supreme. Why, do, why am I choosing it for this series? Why are we looking at it this way? You'll see, obviously, part of it's because of the text that we're going to use. But let's look at its definition. If you look at the word supreme, 
in the, in the dictionary, specifically, you know, Webster Merriam Dictionary, there's three different definitions, and obviously they sort of rank them. And so the very first, the highest, most common definition is that it's the highest in rank or authority. The second is that it's greatest in degree, quality, or intensity. And the third is that it's characterized by highest excellence or achievement. And this will all hopefully make more sense as we come to a conclusion. We'll see how this definition not only pertains to what I'm contending is God, Jesus, but it also relates to us in our everyday life, and I'll explain that. But just think of this one last analogy. When courts have their disputes and they work their way up, the final authority at some point, if there's appeals and there's constant uh, uh, need for it to be escalated, what, what's the final stop? The Supreme Court. So in life, in this series, we're looking at what that word means, how it applies the supreme life. Now, last little sidebar, and we're going to jump right into this, is there's different terms in seminary, and I want to articulate this because if you are part of the church, I want you to understand how carefully we need to read through the Bible. Uh, and if you're not part of the church, I still want you to know how carefully we read through the Bible. The first word is exegesis. So you may already be familiar with that or have seen that in other circles, but that's a common uh, word used in seminary, and essentially what that means, it's a way of interpreting what the Bible says. It means to look at the text as it is written. Who's it written to? When? Where? What were they saying? What is the true context of what is being said? That's exegesis. That's where we seek out from centuries ago, what was recorded for us to read, history that we're reading, how do I understand what was actually meant? That's exegesis. Now, I'm going through all this because the second term, I'm going somewhere with this, but the second term is eisegesis. And really what that means is to interpret text based on a preconceived idea or Maybe just a thought that I have that I want the scripture to sort of start to point to or lead me towards. And it's not always a bad thing. It's not like there's people, there are some, but it's not like we're all out there trying to facetiously distort the text because I wanted to say this thing or that. A lot of times it's just because we'll approach the Bible and we already have something on our mind and we read the scripture with a slant of what we already have in our mind and it misinterprets the text. I say all of that because we're focused on interpreting the Bible based on what it really says. And if you don't necessarily agree that the Bible's the final authority, all I ask is that you just finish through the rest of this video or, or episode if you're listening so you can get to the end and then you can draw your conclusions. So let's get in this. We're going to use the book of Colossians, or the letter more appropriately, the letter to Colossae as our basis to get going. Again, if you, if you struggle with believing the Bible is the final authority, please just hang in there. I'm going to address that as well. But let me give you some fast facts before we get into our text today. The text is going to be in Colossians chapter 1. This is the Apostle Paul. In the early church, 
the beginning of the early church, he's writing to a church in the city of Colossae. So he has a contemporary named uh, Epaphras, and he has visited Paul. He's now the pastor, essentially, of this church in Colossae. He's visited Paul, and he's asked for some help. He said there are a lot of specifically agnostic. There's lots, lots of all these other influences, false teachers or religions, that are, are mingling in and, and teaching things that are not only confusing, but they're starting to morph even what the church believes. And he's saying, look, we just got to get the record straight. We need to iron this out. I need, to, I need the church to understand and have a solid basis of what they believe, why they believe it. And so the Apostle Paul writes this letter to that church. Now, this church was a small town in the Roman province of Asia. They were predominantly Gentile, which I like. I, that's a separate note. I'm, I'm Gentile. I'm not Jewish. But thankfully, Scripture tells me I've been adopted into the family this church I mentioned was adopted and founded by Epaphras, a colleague of Paul, and it was written to combat beliefs that were contrary to Christianity at the time. So let's look at this. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 15 and read through. It's, it's a lengthier section, but just hang with me. It says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms, rulers and authorities in the, the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead, so he is first in everything. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. In verse 22, it's where we'll wrap it up yet. Now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are, a whole, you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. So what am I trying to articulate? What am I trying to get when I read this? I want to read it with that interpretation we said, exegesis. I want to read it based on what's actually being said, to whom it's being said. All right, we've covered that though, right? It's been written to the church in Colossae, predominantly a Gentile church. Thank goodness, because I relate to that. I've been adopted into the family. I'm part of the church. So... The Apostle Paul is essentially writing to me. I can take this and learn from what he's saying to, the, to Colossae. I can take that and apply it to me. So what is he saying? Let's, let's look at the very first thing here. He says that Jesus is supreme over all creation. That's our very first point here. Jesus is supreme in creation. 
we believe that he is preeminent, meaning he was before. See, the, the false teachers in the time of the time for Col- in Colossae, they didn't deny the importance of Jesus. They just dethroned him. They just wanted him to have prominence, but not to be preeminent, meaning they wanted to take Jesus and just incorporate. You ever seen the bumper sticker coexist? It's like it's it's beyond just coexisting. They wanted to take Jesus and add him into the mix as just another of many gods, one of many beliefs, and tried to morph it all into one melted up mess. But Jesus as the Apostle Paul is articulating, he is supreme. Most specifically, he's supreme in creation. What does that mean? That means that he created all things. Everything that exists, exists for him. He holds everything together. Look, if you're, if you're a skeptic or, or if you're not already part of the church and you're wondering about this, I'm, I'm, I, you can see where I, my starting point is. Right, that I believe Jesus is supreme in creation. Well, why do I believe that? Well, it starts with just essentially looking at the birth of the universe. The most widely accepted theory in science as of today in 2024, when this is being recorded, is the Big Bang Theory, which at its most elemental basis is that everything came from nothing. Big Bang Theory, that's what it is. Everything came from nothing. But here's what I have to reconcile using intellectual honesty, using science, reason, logic. Is that possible? Just look at the, uh, the habitability, or I should say the probability for the universe, and more, more specifically our solar system, to be habitable for life. There's a documentary called The Privileged Planet where there's astrophysicists and mathematicians and all these highly educated members of academia that have come together and tried to put a number to it. If all the factors in the universe that were necessary for life had to come together at the right place, the right time, all of the right conditions, what, what would the probability of that be so that we also could postulate and look and try to see what is the likelihood of there being other planets out there that sustain life. And what they discovered was the number was so minute, our brains can't even wrap our, we can't even wrap our brains around it. They said it is one one thousand of one one trillionth. Oh my goodness, I, I can't, I can't fathom a trillion let alone a thousand of a one trillion. That's crazy. I like it how it's articulated this way. Dr. Hugh Ross, astrophysicist, he uses this illustration. Check this out. He says, imagine covering a billion North American continents with dimes up to the moon. So we're talking 238,000 miles high. Choose one dime at random, paint it red, and throw it back into the piles. Now, go blindfold a friend and have him pick one dime from the billion continents to choose from. What are the odds he'd choose the red dime? It's one in 10,000 trillion, trillion, trillion. My mind sometimes struggles with basic math. I certainly can't 
wrap my mind around that. Yet that is what the probability of the universe and more specifically our, our solar system and planet being able to sustain life, being able to be habitable. And so with that, I have, I have no, if, if the Big Bang Theory is the predominant theory in science, in, in your highest academic institutions, Big Bang Theory, everything came from nothing, then I've got, I have to reconcile that right off the bat when I look at the stars, I have to acknowledge whether it's convenient or not convenient that there is God. There is a God. It doesn't make sense for there to be anything other than a God that caused everything to come from nothing. It just, there has to have been a cause, and I am, am contending that that cause was God. Now, it's a long leap for some to be able to go from that now to believing Jesus and the entire Bible. I believe Jesus is that creator. But why do I believe that? We've established why I believe God. Why do I believe Jesus? And it's, it, it's simply the Bible. Now, you might just write that off immediately, or, or those that you know might just write it off immediately. But check this out. This thing that we call the Bible, this story, this history that's been recorded, was put together and written over 1,500 years. Now, just off the bat, before I get into any other stats, that's a miracle that it could even exist today, that it could have sustained the, the test of time and, and all these other influences. But 1,500-year span, I, I lose stuff I wrote last week, let alone 1,500 years. All right, now check this out. It was also written with contributing authors, and we believe inspired by God, but authors of more than 40. That's incredible. Three different continents. These, these men and women that contributed were all sorts of different kinds of people from all statuses, all different kinds of walks of life. You had some that were kings, some that were servants, some that were doctors, some that were fishermen. You had the educated and the uneducated. You had men and you had women, which is especially interesting. Given, given how women were treated in the ancient world, that blows my mind in and of itself. Yet all these things, three continents, came together to compose the Bible. And then later on in, in more recent history, we see the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And with that, we already had the collection of the Old Testament written, had been published by then. We're talking modern, relatively modern. The Dead Sea Scrolls are discovered, and what do they find? They find in incredible accuracy. They believe the Dead Sea Scrolls were original manuscripts of the Old Testament, and they found incredible precision between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Old Testament. You can't tell me that these things are random or happenstance. It's, it doesn't make sense. That, that takes too much faith for me. It takes too much faith for me to come to that conclusion. See, I think the problem is that we've, uh, we've put the Bible against science as if they just fight against one another, and I don't think that's true at all. I think we could look at the Bible and we can find what we are calling science, and we can know more about the world that we live in. Think about this, the law of thermodynamics. 
widely, I mean, no, no one's refuting that in popular academia right now. Mass can neither be created nor destroyed. It's uh, something you're taught in high school science now. Genesis 2, the very first book of the Bible, gives us that law. It says, thus the heavens and the earth and all the, all the host of them were finished. Done. Meaning there's, there's no more mass to be made. There's none uh, that's being taken away. First law of thermodynamics, mass can neither be created nor destroyed. I just can't come to the conclusion that the Bible is just an accident. I also don't even believe it could be a conspiracy because, again, you're talking 1,500-year span, over 40 different authors, three continents. I don't know in the ancient world or even today if it would be possible for such a scam, such a collaboration to happen to scam humanity. Therefore, I believe the Bible to be to be the word of God, to be accurate in history and what it's trying to tell us. And what does it tell us? You look at the New Testament, part of the Bible as a whole, it points to, and even the Old Testament points to, Jesus. Jesus as the Savior, Jesus as the Creator. Therefore, we start with this very first point, Jesus is supreme in creation. That's what I believe. That's what uh, Bible believers are, are contending, that Jesus is supreme in creation. So let's keep this going then. Let's, let's kind of establish a little bit more in this. What does it mean then? What, what are we to glean from the text when we look at this letter to Colossae? The second aspect of this, or the second point, if you want to take notes, is that Jesus is supreme, if you look even in the text, you can look and see where it says that Jesus is supreme over all who rise from the dead. A lot of commentaries and Bible scholars will word this, Jesus is supreme in redemption. I've added a word, you'll see on the screen, I've, I've added it just for our, just because of the way our vernacular is, I added religion. It's an oversimplification, but it, it, it helps us to wrap our mind around it a little better, I think. Jesus is supreme in religion. Let's start with this. His historicity is confirmed. It's not contested. Uh, some You have some on the fringe uh, of, of historians that want to contest it, but it's widely accepted Jesus was, in fact, a true historical person. Now, that in and of itself is not enough, right? Because you have other religious leaders of different faiths that their historicity is confirmed as well. So I understand we can't stop there. But what makes Jesus, and more specifically to us, Christianity, what, is, what makes it unique? Well, only Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Only Jesus became man in order to redeem man. Only Jesus sought after man. See, in other religions, men seek to find God. In Christianity, we believe God sought after us. Only Jesus died so that life could be given. Only Jesus offers grace. In other religions, you have to earn favor with who's being described and, and attributed to as being God. Jesus only refers or offers true forgiveness. 
in other religions, you have to gain goodness through all the things you do. All, all of this, you have to work and strive and, and earn it. Only Jesus hung on a cross, and only Christianity makes God available and acceptable. Where in the Bible, it says that we can go boldly to the throne, meaning when we pray, we believe Jesus hears us. He actually hears the words that you're saying. And so I want to do this real quick. I just want to compare and consider uh, how all these other religions, most common religions of our day, view Jesus and what their key texts are. What are their key writings that help that, those believers of that religion to understand their faith? What is that and what is a little bit of background as far as how they founded or who founded them. Let's look at this. So biblical Christianity, founded roughly 30 AD, right, with Jesus. Jesus is God. Our key writings are the Holy Bible. And I explained why I believe the Bible to be accurate. But let's, let's continue on then. Let's look at some of these others that are, are in our culture today. You have Jehovah Witness, founded around 1879 by Charles Russell. Key writings are books written in the 1800s, okay? Their view of Jesus is that he is not God. Their key texts, 1800s. Those strongly influenced by Charles Russell. Let's keep going then. Mormonism, founded around 1830 by Joseph Smith. Their key writings would be the Mormon Bible as inspired by who? Joseph Smith, their view of Jesus as that he is a separate God and also had also is our older brother and lived a very different life than the Gospels portray. But I can't get around the fact, Okay, this was this was what, 1830. And it was Joseph Smith who wrote the Mormon Bible. Let's keep going. Seventh day Adventism founded in 1863 by James and Ellen White. Key writings include the Bible, however, it's alongside all of these supplemental or should we say more prominent publications by Ellen White. Their view of Jesus is that he was exalted by God, which provoked Lucifer's jealousy, but that he did not complete the atonement. He didn't complete the redemption for humanity. Let's keep going. Scientology, just two more. Founded in 1954 by L. Ron Hubbard. Key writings include his book, and their view of Jesus is that he was not the creator, and they rarely mention him. And then we finally arrive at one last one, Islam. Founded around 570 A.D. by Muhammad. Now, I'd at least already in the list, this is significantly older than many of the others. But here we go, 570 A.D., founded by Muhammad. What are their key writings? Well, the Quran, as, as it was revealed to whom? Muhammad. Their view of Jesus is that he's not God, he's simply a prophet. He was a good man. He, he, he was not, in fact, God. I can't help but just reflect on this list of all these different belief systems and look at what guides them in understanding their faith. 
I, I can't help do that and realize that there's this, this glaringly obvious fact that there's a very, very small group, a lot of times just one person, who wrote what is the guiding key text for that religion to understand their faith by. I don't have that much faith. I don't have that much faith to be an atheist and believe that everything came from nothing and, and nothing caused that. I don't have enough faith to believe that, that God could be anything else that's described in these major religions in the world based on a book written by a single man. I think when I look at the Bible, it's a miracle that it's together. Over 40 authors, three continents, 1,500 years. It's a miracle that it could exist, it could be sustained even until today. That's how I arrive at this conclusion. Among all the religions, Jesus is supreme. He offers us redemption. He makes it personal. And he makes it absolute. And so another aspect of this, though, that says in verse 18, Christ is also the head of the church. So why does all of this matter to me, to you and I? How do we make this hyper-personal for you and I in our everyday life? That I'm saying all of this to say that Jesus' redemptive work applies to you. Now you'll see on the screen, I put the Colossians because this was written to Colossae. The church in Colossae, Paul is trying to tell them there that this applies to you. Verse 21 on, it says, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence. And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. It blows my mind. He's writing to you. He's writing to me. Jesus' redemptive work applies to me. And we continue reading. Verse 23. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. See, because Jesus is supreme, he's always first. And he expects the same in your life, in my life. He expects to be first. His redemptive work applies to me. But so do the other things. Yes, he's supreme in, in redemption or religion as we kind of made it, we simplified it. He's supreme in creation. He was preeminent. He existed before because he's the one who caused something to come from nothing. But because he is supreme, he does not take a second place slot. He does not take a second place in our hearts. He wants first. So the question now, I'm looking to those that if you find yourself more on the right as far as you're now in the church category or you're inching your way closer, 
Do you believe Jesus is supreme? If so, is that evident in your life? Does your life reflect that Jesus is supreme? I know this sounds really preachy right here, but I have to ask myself that at times because I'm a Mr. Fix-It. I, I like to try to solve problems. I, I, I believe that as, as a, uh, that I'm supposed to provide for my family. So whenever there's any sort of issue of taking care of my family or providing or or you know going after some sort of conflict like I, I'm a mixer, Mr. Fix-It like I put all sort of all of the obligation on myself to the extreme that sometimes even I myself a pastor will sometimes get this out of whack and I don't put Jesus as supreme in my life. I don't go to him first sometimes and I have to repent and I have to confess that and say, God, I'm sorry. Help me to, to rearrange these priorities to get them right. So this is this is not me just on a soapbox. This is us together. If you're listening or watching, this is us together truly asking ourselves to have a true moment of intellectual honesty and reason and look at our hearts and look at our lives and say, is Jesus supreme? Because if he is, our life and the way we live it will reflect that. Or it won't. So let me go back where we started, and this is it. We, we started with this definition of supreme. This whole series is called the supreme life. The first highest definition was that the word supreme is highest in rank or authority. And then you move down to the lesser definition, which is greatest in degree, quality, or intensity. And finally, characterized by the highest excellence or achievement. See, Jesus has the highest rank there, right? Highest rank, highest authority, but his redemptive work applies to you and I. And therefore, I get to also take, in, take part in this thing called the supreme life. Because I can live a life, as supreme is defined, characterized by highest excellence or achievement. I can live a life that is supreme because the true supreme life is Jesus. Jesus is supreme over creation. Jesus is supreme over redemption and religion. And all of that applies to my life and I can talk to this very real, very personal God, which is Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for this text and, and, and what you have revealed to us. God, I know I'm, I'm no apologist. I'm not even an evangelist, God, but I know that you've placed this burden on my heart to share this with anyone willing to listen. And God, I believe as I reflect on this letter written to to the church in Colossae, it is exactly like you are writing and speaking to the church today. That you are asking all of us to self-reflect on who is God. And, and, and if, if Jesus is God, then do we actually believe he's supreme? Because if we actually believe it, it means that our lives will line up. You say that, that we should obey your commandments, that we should love you. We should love our neighbor, love one, one another. God, I, I want to live this supreme life like you intend and want me to live it. And so I'll start right here. 
with my own confession, God, that you would forgive me for the times where I have I have put something else in front of you and you were not supreme in my life. God, I'm sorry and I, I ask for your forgiveness. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me and you would help those that are listening to be able to, to get our priorities in order and right, God, that we would make you supreme in our life and that would overflow and trickle into us being able to live a life of excellence and live a life of quality, live a life where you are walking with us, you are ever-present. God, I pray for those listening that you would just encourage them wherever they are, that they would know that you're speaking to them, that they would know that the Bible is worth looking at again. Perhaps they wrote it off uh, as something, uh, uh, maybe just a conspiracy or a scam, but Lord, let, let them be reminded that it's something they should take a second look at, and for those of us that try to live our life by it, help us to, to self-reflect and realize that if you're supreme, our life reflects that. God, I just ask that you'd help each of us, keep us all safe, and bring us back together soon where you can continue to speak to us. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. I hope this has been challenging for you, but encouraging. I hope you will share this with those. I'm no apologist or, or evangelist even, but I do believe that, like the Bible says, we should be ready to give an account of our faith, why we believe what we believe. And these are just some. And I'll do more study, and we'll continue this series next week with, with beware. But these are just some of the arguments that I believe or, or the evidences that I believe point us to Jesus. Jesus as the one who is supreme. I hope you'll be blessed and will join us again next week.